So this morning, if you're taking notes, you see there in your outline that I've entitled this morning's sermon as Before Christ, After Christ. Before Christ, After Christ. That's what we'll be looking at this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Let me read the passage to you, and then we'll dive right in. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and even given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Father, we bow before you this morning as we celebrate how great is our God to you. O God, we bow Our hearts and we pray that you would speak to us through your word as we learn what it's like to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, but rather putting off the old. And as you put on the new, that we would walk in righteousness and in holiness, which we find only in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells a story of a character who is tormented by a red lizard that lives on his shoulder. The lizard, which represents indwelling sin that we all face, constantly mocks the young man. Then the angel comes and offers to remove the lizard. The young man is initially thrilled and thinks, I can be rid of this thing that so torments me. So the young man recognizes that the angel wants to get rid of the lizard, but also recognizes that the angel glows with a deadly heat. And that will be the way that he would remove the lizard. It would be by killing it. And so the young man suggests that maybe it isn't really necessary for the lizard to die. And perhaps another time is better for dealing with him. The angel will not be put off, though. This moment contains all moments, he says. The lizard, then recognizing the danger that he is in, also begins to strive for his own life from a new angle. He tries to unsettle the young man with doubts and suggestions that any of us who know the subtle seductions of our own sin would soon recognize. Be careful, the lizard says. Then the lizard tries to rationalize the character's thinking by arguing. And here's what C.S. Lewis writes. The angel can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You only be sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've been sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise you I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really 
nice dreams. All sweet and fresh and almost innocent. In writing on this, that word almost innocent is discussed by Brian Chapel in his commentary. And he says this about this lizard that wants to be almost innocent within this boy's life. He says, with such assessment, we often justify our sin and compromise ourselves. We reason it can't really hurt. And even if it is wrong to be without such flaws is practically not human. Who could live that way? Only the warped and legalistic would deny themselves such things. I have a better understanding of grace than that. God will forgive me and I won't let it go too far again. With such words, we choose to let our lizards live. We convince ourselves that the remnants of sin in our lives are not really dangerous and that almost innocent is safe enough. Well, Paul says that instead of nurturing such lizards, uh, we should be putting them to death. Right in this passage, if you're tracking with this introduction, if you will, it's all about not walking anymore as the Gentiles do. And there's something in each one of us, however, that still at times longs for the behavior and the activity of the Gentiles. And so this passage this morning that we're looking at is all about no compromise Don't give in even for a minute. We are no longer to walk as the Gentiles did. We have now learned Christ. And if we have learned Christ, then we should live for Christ. This world and all that it offers simply cannot and will not satisfy. True happiness comes from truth, which transforms you and makes you triumphant in Christ. So this morning, we're going to talk about your life before Christ and then your life after Christ. And it's amazing that while um, while our world is becoming more and more secular in its thinking, that the central date of all the world is still founded around Christ's birth. For over 2000 years, historians have used the term B.C. to refer to that time before Christ, and then A.D. or Anno Domini in Latin for the year of our Lord to refer to the time after Christ. Now, in the last couple of decades, our society has tried to change those to B.C.E., before the common error, and C.E., common error. But nevertheless, the world has been marked in one way or another by the actual coming of Jesus Christ. And your life has also been marked by Christ. There are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are living the life before Christ, should he choose in his sovereign grace to save them, and those who are living their life after Christ. And so therefore, our message this morning highlights the contrast between your life before Christ and your life after Christ. So this morning, we'll simply have two major headings, as you see in your outline. And the first one is this. Let's talk about your life before Christ. Now, you need to know that we are in that second half of Ephesians. And as we dive in here in verse 17, we we need to be reminded that the first half of Ephesians is all about your position in Christ. In fact, look back at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the first part of Ephesians is all about your position in Christ. The fact that you have a high calling. And if you have a high position in Christ, 
and a high calling in Christ. And the Bible's also called us to a holy practice and to holy conduct. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 4. There we see the hinge where, where the, the book begins to give a little bit more emphasis on the imperative instead of just the indicative, where Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so what we looked at in the first 16 verses of chapter 4 was that we're to be walking in unity. That we all have different gifts, we all have a different, a different part that we play in the body of Christ, but we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and so we're to walk together to grow up and mature in Christ as the body builds itself up in love. That's what we spent a little bit of time talking about in verses 1 through 16, walking in unity. Now what we're doing is looking at verses 17 through 32, where we're going to talk about walking in Holiness. We're called to walk in holiness. So look there at verse 17 in chapter 4, and we read this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So notice your first blank there in the outline is that you suffered from the futility of your mind. So he's challenging us. Remember, he's writing to believers, both Gentiles and Jews, in Ephesus. And he's reminding them that when they were a Gentile before Christ, they were walking in the futility of their mind. Notice the text starts off here in verse 17 with the conjunction now. And so Paul is connecting us with what he already said in verses 1 through 3 of the, cha- of the same chapter. Notice where he wrote again that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Verse 2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he kind of goes off in verses 4 through 16 and explains what that unity is. And so now in verse 17, this word now, this conjunction is connecting us back with verses 1 through 3, the kind of walk that we're to have. And so he's telling us that in order to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, not only do we have to walk in unity, but we also are called to walk in holiness. We're not to be walking like the Gentiles. We're to be walking in the holiness of Christ. And so this statement is in verse 17 is about how the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And this is something that Paul noticed in verse 17. He's testifying about this. He's testifying in the Lord about this. And in this context, the word testify is not an oath with the Lord, but rather it is Paul solemnly declaring his exhortation from a staunchly Christian worldview. And so he's challenging us to consider, again, what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, both in unity and now in holiness. And in a sense, Paul is urging us that we would no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, if you have been saved, then you have come out of that lifestyle. Uh, Paul is challenging us to never go back. You don't want to fall back into the habits you had before because it was all futile. It was all uh, for naught. It was all in vain. In fact, do you remember Paul describing our life before Christ in chapter 2? Look back at Ephesians chapter 2 where we were reminded that we were dead in the trespasses of our sins. That You used to walk like this, right? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
So that's describing your life before Christ. That's describing how the Gentiles walk. That's describing the fact that we were dead, but now we've been made alive. And so he's reminding us again in chapter 4 that we ought not walk that way because it's, it's unregenerate. It, it's how the Gentiles walk. And so here in verse 17, the word Gentile simply is a reference to an, any unbeliever, any unregenerate or ungodly person. Throughout the New Testament, Gentile could refer racially or ethnically to all non-Jews, but here it refers to all non-Christians. And he's simply saying, don't walk like these unbelievers, these pagans who are walking according to the world. If you remember some of our introductory material about Ephesus, Ephesus was totally dominated by Greek philosophy. It was totally dominated even by the economy of the, 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 the goddess Diana and the temple of Artemis, where there was lewd practice of all sorts and kinds. And so the Ephesians really acted based on, on knowledge and on sensuality. And so knowledge in some ways, for some, kind of trumped everything that they did. They, they really respected uh, the fact that you could have real intellect. In fact, Ephesus isn't all that different than Athens, not that far from Athens, certainly not that different in, in the thinking, remember what Paul uh, learned when he went to, to Athens, that the Athenians uh, uh, spent all their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. They just wanted to sit around and talk and, 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 and philosophize. They just wanted to spend time talking and gaining more intellect. But the Bible tells us that this kind of knowledge, that this kind of intellect, that this kind of, of mindful focus is futile. And that word futile means empty. It could mean vanity, purposelessness, absurdity, even worthlessness. And this is a word that's used, this word futile, is used a couple of other times in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, where Peter says, For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping those who live in error. So speaking of false teachers, he's saying, look, they boast, but it's full of folly. That word folly is the same word for futile. It's empty. It doesn't have any value in it whatsoever. That's what false teachers, that's what Gentiles fill their minds with, futility. This word futility is also used in Romans 8.20 as a reference to how the creation is subject to futility. That the earth was to produce fruit, to preserve life but was thwarted due to the curse. And so now the earth is unable to do what it was created to do without God's sovereign grace. So the idea here is that Paul is saying that the thinking of the world is totally futile. If you don't hold to the truth of Christ, then you don't have any true purpose. If you don't know Christ, you don't have truth. If you don't have truth, then your life becomes vain. And when your life becomes vain, you begin to chase anything in this world that begins appeal to appeal to your depraved nature. And the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that this is a chasing after the wind. And so we're learning here that not only are Gentiles suffering from the futility of their minds, but secondly, or point B, he says that you suffered from being darkened in your understanding. Not only do they have these empty minds, thinking that they're 
building themselves up in knowledge, but the Bible tells us they actually don't have true knowledge because they're darkened in their understanding. The idea here is that, is that it's the idea of being clouded or having a darkened mind in contrast with an illuminated mind. It's actually in the passive, which kind of reminds us that they're darkened by something. We could say they're darkened by their own depravity or they're even darkened by God. That God, as we're going to see here, gives them over to their own reprobate condition. And so Paul warns us of unbelievers and false teachers who really have this kind of darkness in their mind. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and look at verses 7 and 8 where we read about this, 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 this desire to gain knowledge but not, not really gain it. 2 Timothy 3, 7 says that these these. Gentiles are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So they're always searching, always learning, always trying to to, to gain some kind of knowledge, but they're never able to get there because true knowledge is only revealed by God. True knowledge only comes through Christ. The ability to know and believe the truth comes through Christ, not your own effort to arrive at some kind of knowledge that doesn't exist outside of Christ. In fact, this, uh, this same word darkened is also found in, in Romans chapter 1. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 1, and you see, again, the word darkened or this idea that these Gentiles, or you and I, before Christ, were not able to come to the truth, to have our minds opened in, uh, when we were walking in our depravity. And so here in Romans chapter 1, Verses 21 through 23, we read this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became, what? Futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see the parallel of these words here as Paul writes to Ephesus and he writes to Rome. He's saying, look, these people, they acted like they knew God, but they became futile. They did not honor God. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I mean, the idea here is that when your understanding is darkened, then you begin to do things that are illogical. Things that are illogical, like worshiping the creature instead of worshiping the creator. I mean, it's illogical that you would worship an animal instead of worshiping the one who made that animal. And yet Romans tells us that's exactly what they did. They began to exchange God for images of man and images of animals. So their mind was so dark and they were doing things that just doesn't make sense. Not only worshiping the creature instead of the creator. There's I read an article or, or heard about rather on the briefing this week from Al Mohler about about uh, thinking about the unregenerate mindset about the idea of trying to make uh, decent tasting food out of marijuana. So there's a movement right now for various chefs on the cutting edge to try to add cannabis to their their uh, their menu in order uh, in order for people to get high uh, by coming and eating at a restaurant. The problem is it doesn't taste good. And so these chefs are working all kind of ways that they can to somehow mask the real taste of this this uh, this cannabis in order that people could eat it. Well, it's just illogical. It's illogical. No chef would ever try to put some some uh, some substance in his dish that doesn't taste good. 
unless they're being completely illogical. I'll tell you another uh, form of, of an illogical doesn't make any sense is the idea of what happened one week ago when a 10-year-old girl was strapped with a bomb turning her into a suicide bomber who killed 16 people in a Nigerian market exactly one week ago today. Well, it's just illogical. In the name of, of religion, in the name of, of peace, in the name of Allah, that someone would attach to a 10-year-old girl a bomb that would blow up and kill 16 people, it's completely illogical. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's an example of those who've been given over thinking to be wise. They've become fools. And so before Christ, you walked as the Gentiles who suffered from the futility of mind and you were darkened. I was darkened in our understanding before Christ. You also look at C. You suffered from being alienated from God. You and I were were alienated from God. That word alienated means to be a complete stranger. Like you don't know God, like you don't know him or understand him at all. In fact, This word alienated has already been used here in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, verse 11, where we read, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so when we were Gentiles, we were alienated from God. We were outside of the covenant of promise. We were outside of the knowledge of God. We were outside of anything good. We were strangers to our creator because of our own sin. Not only this, but verse 18 uh, here in chapter 4 says, They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. And they were given a couple of reasons of why it is that we were alienated from God. The first is, is because of our own ignorance. See that there in verse 18, alienated to God because of their ignorance that is in them. So your next blank there is it's because you're alienated because of your own ignorance. This word ignorance means a lack of information that may result in reprehensible conduct, exercising a lack of discernment. So it's being without knowledge, but the cause of that without knowledge leads you to a reprehensible conduct, a complete lack of discernment or any rationality. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 46. And Isaiah chapter 46, I think, is a helpful illustration, again, of, of people who have zero knowledge of God. And so having no knowledge of God, try to make a God in their, in their own image or to make a God with their own hands. Here, this passage is referring to actually the Babylonian Empire who fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And look what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 46.1. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are own beast and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So again, he's... He's talking to the Babylonians who worship Nebo and who worshiped uh, who worshiped Bel. Okay, that's an early form of Baal, right? Of Bel. But the idea is that they're they're following these idols who had to be carried around, and they became burdens on these heavy beasts. Look at verse two. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So then he's writing about, well, look, these gods didn't have any power because the Babylonians then got overtaken by the Medo-Persians. 
So they had formed these gods of Nebo and of, of, uh, of Bel, but they had to carry them and they weren't able to save them. In fact, they just became a burden. And then look at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. So he goes from addressing the Babylonians, and now he's addressing his own people, the house of Jacob. He's addressing Israel. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. You see what's going on here? He's comparing you either have a choice of carrying your own God around or God can carry you. You can either carry your own God, your own desire, your own idol of your heart that has no power to bring you happiness or to deliver you from your sin or from the enemy Or you can receive the message from God this morning, even as he spoke it to Israel in the Old Testament, that you've been born by God. And before your birth, God carried you from the womb, even to your old age again, he says, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. What a great reminder. It's illogical to say, no, 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 I want to carry my own God around and hope my God will save me. Or you could submit to the supreme God who loves us, who desires a relationship with us, who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners so that you could turn from your sin and God could carry you. It's the message of Christ in the New Testament in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where he says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can either carry your own God or you can be carried by God. And my friends, it is illogical. It doesn't make any sense. It is ignorant to carry a God of your own making when you could be carried by the God of the universe who created you and who desires a love relationship with you. Well, a second reason why it is here that these, uh, that these Gentiles are alienated from God, in addition to their own ignorance, we also see uh, that they are alienated from God because of their own hardness. And their own hardness. Notice the end of verse 18 says, uh, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And this word hardness carries the idea of being rock hard. It is used by uh, some of the physicians back in the ancient world to describe the calcification that forms around the broken bones. And after healing, that, that broken part that was now calcified becomes actually harder than the bone itself. It was also used of the hard formations that sometimes occur in the joints and cause them to become immobile. In this sense, it could be describing the idea of paralysis as well as the idea of hardness. In fact, one commentator says this, quote, sin has a petrifying effect and the heart of the person who continually chooses to sin becomes hardened and paralyzed to spiritual truth, utterly insensitive to the things of God. And so that's what's going on here in this passage. That that doesn't describe what's going on in our culture today. I I don't know what does, that our hearts have become hardened, that our our desire is just to remain ignorant about the things of God because we want to continue to pursue our own sin. 
And the last thing I want to say about this Gentile mindset would be this, is that when we were in that frame of mind, you suffered from the loss of all feeling. Notice verse 19 talks about our callousness. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So the word callousness, as you know, or callous could be translated literally as a loss of all feeling. Spiritually speaking, there's the idea that you have literally become dead to the feeling of the guilt of committing these sins and walking according to the patterns of this world. That idea of, of, of losing feeling reminds me a little bit of the fact that, that the, the human body can suffer uh, different degrees of burn wounds. You probably heard of first degree burns and second degree burns and, and third degree burns, right? And, and a part of the, the idea behind uh, just, just getting sunburned, you know, you, you get sunburned, it hurts, right? You're like, man, that really hurts. I don't want to get sunburned again. And that just kind of goes down to the, to the top layer of your epidermis. And so you got to get some aloe. You want to make sure you don't get sunburned again because it's no fun. That's a first degree burn. And then you have a second degree burn. And a second degree burn is like when you fall asleep in the sun by the pool, for a few hours in the middle of August, right? Then you wake up and you have like blisters that are on your face and on your skin. It's a second degree burn because now it's gone deeper than just the epidermis. It's gone down into the dermis, down into that middle layer of the skin. And it's a pretty bad wound. It could require special cream from the doctor, right? That Silvadine cream and a little bit of extra care because it's a second degree burn. Or you could suffer from a third degree burn. And a third-degree burn is when it actually goes through the entire skin layer and it goes down into what's called the subcutaneous tissue. And what's interesting about the third-degree burn is that a third-degree burn doesn't hurt at all. It burns through all of the nerves. It burns through all the way to the subcutaneous tissue where you would think that would be the worst burn of all, but there's no pain sensors in that area. In fact, I'll never forget as a PA working in the burn unit for a few weeks, and part of our job was to debride these patients to remove uh, old skin and yucky stuff out of the wound, right? So they come into uh, the whirlpool for treatment, and, and then after they get out of the whirlpool, your job is to take, take some instruments, like some, you know, some cotton swabs, and scrape that stuff out so that the bacteria completely gets out and it can heal. And I remember the first time I did this, I was looking at this patient who had several third-degree wounds on his body, uh, having been in a fire. And uh, so I'm thinking, oh, man, this is going to be tough, you know, to, to, to clean this out because this guy is probably going to get mad at me. You know, I need to give him a stick to bite on or something, so I'm scraping this stuff out uh, that, he's, that I'm going to be safe. And so I remember starting to scrape this stuff out, and I keep looking up at him, like, is he going to slap me or is he grimacing or how, how can he take this? And he just had no look on his face at all. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. So I start scraping a little harder, you know, scraping a little harder. And, and I'm like, you can't feel that? You know, and I'm just like sticking. He's like, I can't feel anything, man. I can't, I can't feel it at all. Well, that's the idea of having your conscience seared. The idea that you go beyond a sense of guilt and you begin to openly embrace all types of sin with no guilty conscience at all. You become so callous to what God says and to that, that, that conscience that he places in every person to where you're given over in this text, given over to sensuality. That's your next blank. They're just completely given over to sensuality. Verse 19 uh, tells us that they've given themselves up to sensuality. Now, that word sensuality does not mean just a little risque. 
You know, sometimes we'll say, well, I saw this movie and it had this little sensual uh, part in there. And we think of it as a little bit of a maybe a risque part of sensuality. But the word sensuality literally means a total lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. So when the Bible uses this word sensuality, it means that you've been completely callous to any type of reasonable behavior, and now you've been given completely over to the sin of no restraint. In fact, hold your finger there and turn back to that Romans 1 passage, because this is where this passage goes as well. The idea of, of, of this sensuality in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, picking up where we left off in 23, says, Therefore God gave them up. So the idea here in Ephesians, the idea in Romans, they've been given up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the man, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, this again just completely describes our culture today that there's a callousness to the area of sexuality, that you can do whatever you want with whoever you want, however you want, and people don't feel guilty about it at all. Why? Because their, their minds are futile. They're empty. They don't understand the truth of God. They've been given over to sensuality. There are no constraints. And then the Bible also says there, number two, that you're greedy for more impurity. The idea here is that they are given over to this sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. And the word impurity there still implies a sexual sin. The more you get, the more you want. You're never satisfied. You step out of bounds a little bit. You continue to step out of bounds to try to find some kind of satisfaction. And you just can't get enough. And you're willing to pay any price in order to pursue what you want to pursue. Because you've been overcome with this desire that is ruling your heart. A couple of commentaries had an illustration here where they talked about an ancient Greek story about a Spartan youth who stole a fox, but then inadvertently came upon the man from whom he had stolen it. And to keep his theft from being discovered, the boy stuck the fox inside of his clothes and stood without moving a muscle while the frightened fox tore out his vital organs. Even at the cost of his own painful death, he would not own up to his wrong. And our society is so determined to not be discovered as being wrong that it stands unflinching as its very life and vitality is ripped apart by the sins and corruption that it holds so dear, acting as if nothing is wrong. And yet we're getting eaten up on the inside by our own sensuality and impurity. Well, this again is the description of our life before Christ. How about you this morning? Do you recognize the lifestyle that you've come out of if you're in Christ? 
Have you ever been tempted to look back at the ways that you used to walk, thinking that there may be some pleasure in it? Have you ever thought that you licked some temptation for good, only to find it blowing up in your face years later, because you began to set your mind not on Christ, but on the flesh, and you were drawn again into the way of the Gentile? Well, we're reminded this morning in this text that we are to no longer walk as Gentiles do. It's empty. It's futile. There's no hope in it. Instead, if we are in Christ today, we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so just as gross as your life is before Christ, our life is so wonderful after Christ. And so look at this second major heading here that your life after Christ. Let's talk for a moment about what's going on here in verses 20 through 24, where verse 20 starts off says, but it is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so here we're learning now that you have learned Christ. You used to be that way, but now you've learned about Christ, verse 20 tells us. This, there's this adversative conjunction, but, to show strong contrast, just like that but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, that you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy. And so now we're reading again about the Gentiles, but there's that but again that's saying that's the way that you used to be because now you've learned Christ. That word learn means that you've gained knowledge, but it also implies that you've acquired a certain skill. It's not that you just learned it theoretically, but you've acquired a skill to follow what you've learned. In other words, if I told you that I learned how to do heart surgery when I worked as a PA, you would just assume that not only did I study about it in a book, but that I actually performed to some degree parts of that operation. This is what he's saying when he's saying that you learned Christ. It's not only that you just learn the facts about who Jesus is, but there's an implication here that you've, you've acquired a certain skill to now walk in accordance with Christ. We, we could say that learning Christ would, would mean having heard about him. That's your next blank. Because verse 20 says, assuming that you've heard about him. So if you're in Christ, you had to hear about him. And this word uh, hear is kind of, uh, has uh, the, also the implication that you not only are you hearing, but you're obeying. That you're hearing and obeying. It's the idea that, that faith cometh from hearing and hearing from the word of God. But then you also walk in the truths of God's word. Because you've heard about him. Not only have you heard about him, but verse 21 says that you've been taught in him. That you were taught or you were instructed in Christ because he is the truth. It's not just about him. You have to be in him. I love how verse 21 says again that that you were taught in him. So it doesn't say that you were taught by him, but you were taught in him because Jesus embodies truth in himself. It's John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. That no man comes to the Father except through me. So here's the idea that you've heard him and you've been taught in him. So if you've learned Christ, according to verse 20 and 21, then you also, your next blank is that you long to follow Christ. In verses 22 through 24 are where, uh, where that is described with an extremely important concept. Oftentimes in biblical counseling, or just as you grow as a Christian, we just call this putting off and putting on, right? The idea of we put off old behavior, old habits, and we put on Christ-like 
uh, attitude and Christ-like behavior. And so what's going on here in verse 22 is that we read that we need to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so if you've learned Christ, you should long to follow him. And let me give you just three ways that, that you can follow him. Number one, put off your old self. Kind of goes without saying. That's right there what's in the text, the idea of you discard it. The idea that you had, uh, you had on your dirty clothes and you discard them, you disrobe to put on new clothes, which we'll get to in a minute. But you've got to first put off the old. And so you've got to take off your next blank there, take off your old clothes. To put, on, to, to put off your old self deals with taking off your old clothes. It deals with getting rid, get rid of your old habits. And then third, we could say burn the bridge to the old desires. We're talking here about radical amputation. To put off means you get serious about getting rid of your old self, which comes through the gospel, but also there's a requirement in our sanctification that we are partly responsible for doing what the gospel calls us to do. It's the idea that Christ gave in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It says that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And then he gives a reason for both of those. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. So Christ has given a very significant challenge that if we don't stop sinning and put off these old behaviors, it will lead to hell. It will lead to continuing to walk as the Gentiles walk and it will give evidence that you were never truly saved. But as we put off our old self, we're also called, number two, to renew our mind. And in verse 23, we read about that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And so our minds aren't to be chasing futile information, futile knowledge of the Gentiles, but rather our minds are to be renewed. We could say, how do you do that? Well, by setting your mind on things above. That's what Christ has called us to do. Not to be so interested in all the culture and all of the gossip magazines and all the stuff that's going on and what, what celebrity is, is doing what with who. The idea is set your mind on things above. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So we have to renew our minds. And we can do this, as we do this, we also, secondly, are being transformed in our thinking. So in order to renew your mind, you, you set your mind on things above, and this will help transform you. Romans 12:2. do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may uh, discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so to put off and put on requires getting rid of the old setting your mind on Christ, and then it requires, number three, putting on your new self. Or we could say it this way, put on your new clothes. If you get rid of the old clothes, it's time to put on the new clothes. Have you ever had a day where you were working in the yard or maybe accomplishing uh, some, kind of, some kind of a workout and, and you got hot and you got sweaty and your clothes are dirty and they're filthy, uh, then you come home, you, you, you take off your clothes and you take a bath, right? You, you take a shower, and, and when you get out, What's the first thing you do? After you dry off, you put on your new clothes. So it's not good enough just to take off the old clothes. You've got to put on the new. 
Or what about when you get an oil change? Let's say that you, uh, you realize that your car is not running well or it's time for, 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 uh, to get rid of the old oil that's been not lubricating your engine as well as it can. What would happen if you went and drained all the oil, old oil out of your car and then you drove off? How long are you going to make it? If you don't put new oil in, it's going to be a catastrophe. Right? So the idea is you've got to get rid of the old, but you've got to put on the new. What if you were to take your car and you take off the old tires, but you don't put on new tires and you try to drive off? You're not going to make it very far. So the idea here is it's not good enough just to get rid of the sin, but we need to be renewing our mind and putting on. We need to start making new habits. That's your next blank there. We've we got to start making some new habits here, getting in God's word. We, we've, got to, we've got to start getting some accountability Start meditating and hiding our hearts in the truth of Scripture. We need to, third, live your new life before God and before others. And so this is part of what it means to put on. You're putting on your new clothes. You start making new habits. And then you begin to live your new life before God and before others. Some would say that that word righteousness there in 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness that this might be referring to your righteous behavior, not the righteousness of Christ necessarily that is imputed to your account at salvation, but rather the command that you walk righteously. It, it has the idea of you walking righteously, what you, how you act around others, where holiness is more aimed at uh, the idea of how you are viewed before God, that you're made holy by Christ. Why? Because the middle of verse 24 says that you were created after the likeness of God. So you've been now made new by God. He has regenerated you. He has rebirthed you. He has grown you. He is giving you the power to say no to the things of this world and to say yes to him. And it takes work and it takes effort. And it's not only his responsibility. It's he's the catalyst in and through salvation and the power even in your sanctification. But there are commands. These are in the imperative sense here that we put off and we put on. I love the quote by Kent Hughes that I included there in the bottom of your outline that says the new man is not our work. It is God's creation and gift. Paul is commanding a daily appropriation of that which he already possesses that if you possess the new clothes and the righteousness of Christ that you now walk righteously in all that you do in all that you say it's 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 a work it's not just sitting around and this happens uh you know with just a, a quick glance at scripture or an occasional uh attendance at church or a little sermon you listen to it's you getting busy working in your own sanctification resting in God's power but working in your own strength to put off and to put on. And so let's close by just asking a couple of these questions this morning. Have you ever found yourself struggling with old temptations that you thought were in the past? I referred to this earlier, but I think the reason he's warning and challenging believers in Ephesus is because he knows that the Christian life is not easy. And that you still will struggle from time to time with things that used to be in your past when you were dead and living like the Gentiles. And so he's exposing that, saying, don't be like that anymore. Don't walk in that walk. Instead, walk in holiness. Or question number two, does your heart have the tendency to grow calluses in certain areas? Or are you still learning? 
What it means to gain knowledge about Christ, which keeps your heart soft. Do you have a tendency to grow callous, to have a seared conscience in certain areas? Or are you walking in the softness and the tenderness of intimate fellowship with Christ? Third, are you constantly putting off the old self and putting on the new self by resting in Christ, but at the same time striving to live a holy life? We're called to rest in Christ for it's all of his work, but to strive to put off and to put on because we're not living life before Christ. We're living life after Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning from this important passage in Ephesians that we are to put off and to put on. And we just acknowledge, God, that we cannot do this on our own, that we, some of us in this room maybe even, are still living and walking as the Gentiles did. So this morning we pray for a special grace to grant us the ability to repent and to walk in the joy of knowing Christ, that we could put on new clothes this morning. That we could walk in the joy and the happiness of our Savior. We pray, God, that you would grant us the ability to put off and to put on as we look to Christ and as we have learned Christ and we've heard about Christ, that we would walk with him and experience all the grace and all the joy that you provide through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.